were nine You wore a fairy queen costume of your own design Well, look at you now And you put on rouge and lipstick Though it wasn't allowed You were so proud And Daddy said, wash your face You look like a whore That's what he said Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 3rd, 2019. My name is James Marino, and the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Also coming up on uh, November 16th, is that a Saturday, Michael? Yes. We have 54 Loves Cast Albums, which is uh, launching the new website, castalbumreviews.com. So, Michael, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Any, any additional news on 54 Loves Cast Albums? Well, we, we, we do have a great group. Um, Penny Fuller, Anita Gillette, Marty Vidnovic, and Bill Hutton. Uh, all of these people we, we love from several cast albums. And then uh, Robbie Roselle, unfortunately, had to drop out of the show. Oh. But yeah, but we added, uh, for personal reasons, but we added two, uh, two really fabulous young talents. Tyler William Milliron, who was in Spamilton briefly, and... Uh, and the other one is Matthew Drinkwater, who's really up and coming uh, as a pop and musical theater artist. So I think it's going to be quite an evening. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, well, if you can't get enough of Robbie, we have uh, Tuesdays at 54 Below with Robbie, where he's got his uh, his weekly Tuesday show. So definitely get out to uh, see Robbie and support him there at Tuesdays at 54 Below with Robbie Roselle. Yes, he's there all the time, and yeah, unfortunately, he had a death in the family. Oh, um, he did. But he's a very, 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 very active, very talented person, and he's mm, everywhere. Mm. Also with us is uh, Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Broadway Radio is being brought to you by listeners like you. Patrons who support us at patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. That is P A T R E O N dot com slash Broadway Radio. When you support Broadway Radio, you will get the benefit of early access to our broadcast before anyone else. Financial support for Broadway Radio will help us continue to bring our broadcast to you through 2020 and beyond. Once again, that is P A T R E O N dot com slash Broadway Radio to become a supporter. Uh, so we're going to change it up a little bit here, and let's talk about last week's trivia question. This uh, brought us a lot of interesting responses, so why don't you take it away? Well, the question was, a musical from the 70s has both a title song and an overture. Now, usually when a show has a title song and an overture, you hear the title song in the overture. This show didn't, so what's the musical? Well, uh, Tony Janicki brought up Bojigi and Annie, and he's right. Yeah, Greg Christensen, Jack Leshner, Josh Israel brought up Annie, and they were right um, because <laughs> it's true. But neither of those shows were what I had in mind. Um, so for the record, even though uh, they're correct, I will tell you what I was thinking of, and that was Carmelina, the 1978 musical by Alan J. Lerner and Burton Lane. It took until Friday night 
for Mr. Janicki to come up with that answer too, but he mm. did come up with it. So, <laughs> so that's uh, that. So you'd like the question now, James, for this week, huh? No. Why don't we wait oh. until the end of the uh, <laughs> end of today's show? We'll uh, have people hunting and pecking all around the podcast to find the. I suppose show, that's true. To, to find the <laughs> the question. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Peter, when you said the question, I thought at first I thought, well, there would probably be several answers. But the reason why there probably aren't more answers is that, of course, in the 70s, I guess, is when overtures started to die out. Die out. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. So uh, for our possibly our international listeners and uh, maybe our <laughs> our U.S. based listeners are also um we are coming out about an hour later because of uh, the swap to daylight saving time. Uh, and also, you might have noticed that last week's show came out uh, pretty late as well for those who are not Patreon su- uh, supporters. So that's uh, something that we're going to be doing. Our Patreon supporters will be getting uh, this week on Broadway and all of our other shows earlier before others. Uh, but n- never fear. If you uh, are not a Patreon supporter, you can still pick up our show uh, this week on Broadway on Sunday evening. Uh, that's Eastern Sunday evening time, so wherever that equates to on your side. So first up in our reviews, Peter, you got down to Rattlestick to see a monsoon season, to, so tell us about this. Well, this play reminded me a great deal of Linda Vista because, again, we're dealing with a divorce. And uh, the difference here is that uh, we're hearing a conversation that uh, the husband is having on the phone uh, with his soon-to-be ex-wife. And he's not very happy about the situation, just as the man in Linda Vista wasn't. What happens later is we see the woman having that same conversation. Um, We hear what she had to say while we're filling in the blanks of of what he said earlier. So that's kind of um, a cute and um, different type of approach that Lizzie VA, that's V-I-E-H, I I guess it's um, VA, wrote. Now, in this play, the moral of the story is uh, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Or better still, the angel you know is better than the devil you don't. Because this is a very nice guy. His real problem is he hasn't achieved very much. That's true. And it is true that wives lose faith in their husbands from time to time when they don't achieve um, a great deal. So... In a way, it's hard to believe that she would dump him because this actor, Richard Thierio, is so appealing with one of the best smiles I have ever seen in all the years I've been going to the theater. So he seems to be a really nice guy. But um, that famous baseball statement, nice guys finish last, that's what's (laughs) happening here. Um, She just doesn't want him anymore because she just doesn't achieve. All right. So when we meet her – she seems reasonably nice, too, and we, we're inclined to like her as well. However, she does get herself into a difficult situation. That's what I mean about the devil you don't know. Uh, he is quite devilish, amazingly devilish. We never meet him. It's only a two-character play. But, boy, what we hear about him does make him sound truly terrible, and she really regrets the fact that she hooked up with him. Whether or not she's glad that she dumped the uh, husband is another story, but there will be a way that he will prove 
that he really and truly loves her by the time this play ends. And she realizes that, uh, indeed, he's the man for her. Now, I make it sound terribly romantic. Not at all. This is a horrific play in many respects. And I don't mean that in terms of construction or anything like that. What I mean is what happens is really, really horrific. So don't just go in there expecting that there's going to be this uh, lovely little um, even comedy drama. I mean, there, there is comedy in it, but believe me, there's plenty of drama and plenty of turns and twists that you won't expect. So uh, I think this is a very worthwhile evening, and I'm very interested in Lizzie VA. And uh, for that matter, Richard Therio and Therese Fain, um, P-L-A-E-H-N, I guess that's how it's pronounced. But anyway, however she pronounces her name, however he pronounces his name, or she, the playwright pronounces her name, these are tremendously accomplished people. And uh, what's really nice, too, is Rattlestick has improved its facility facility. The seats are now very, very comfortable. I think they're new, or at least since the last time I've been there. So um, it's it's a much more comfortable place to be. Yes, it's still up a very steep and narrow stairway to get there, but uh, once you're up there, I think you're going to be pretty, pretty intrigued by monsoon season. All right. So that is monsoon season. Excuse me. I tripped over that three times in pre-recording. Monsoon season at Rattlestick. I knew you'd do it. Broadway Radio would like to thank our sponsor, Slave Play. Slave Play is the new American play everyone is talking about, and due to phenomenal demand, this satirical look at race, sex, and power has been extended through January 19th. Written by Jeremy O'Harris and directed by Robert O'Hara, Jesse Green of the New York Times calls it one of the best and most provocative new works to show up on Broadway in years. And Aisha Harris adds that Slave Play reimagines the possibilities of what theater can give us. Don't miss the theatrical event of the year. Visit slaveplay.com for tickets. Please support the advertisers who support Broadway radio. So, Michael, you got a chance to get over to Bella Bella. Uh, yes. Peter talked about it last week, so tell tell us what your thoughts on the show are. Yeah, I think you know Peter covered it very well. I enjoyed it. I uh, my main reaction is um, interesting in that I uh, was I would say distracted by the fact that in this play Harvey Firestein plays Bella Abzug not in full drag he wears um he wears a very basic simple black all black uh shirt and pants and then he uh sometimes wears but mostly carries around a large brimmed hat which was the real bella abzug's trademark and that's his uh you know that's his nod towards drag but it's uh it's it's not so much that the appearance distracted me so much is that it's funny. I could not stop thinking about what the current politics are as far as a man doing, uh, playing a woman in drag on stage in the current, uh, you know, socio-political gender climate. Uh, I think with a show like Tootsie, for example, you, you can certainly get away with it because there's so much discussion 
of the fact that here is a, a an actor, uh, a male actor playing a woman in drag. And there's lots of talk about that and, and why he's doing it and what his motivations are and blah, blah, blah. So I don't think there's any issue there at all. Um, if that were not the case in Tootsie, I think maybe that show might have closed on opening night because people are so sensitive about the subject now. And uh, with Harvey Firestein, it becomes even more complicated because he became famous uh, pl- it, with his play Torch Song Trilogy, which he wrote and also in which he originally starred, uh, playing the character of Arnold Beckoff, who is a drag queen, even though I believe we never saw him in absolutely full drag in that show. Uh, just a little bit at the beginning, he's, he's getting out of it. Um, so, but he does have that... Uh, that major history. And then of course, plus on top of that, playing a woman in hairspray in a role that was originally played by a, a, a man in drag as a woman in the film and namely divine. So there's all these kinds of things. And I, and I, I honestly could not stop thinking about it. What, uh, you know, what other people in the audience were thinking, what women, uh, what women in the audience were thinking. Uh, and is this a good thing? Is it a, is a, is it a bad thing? Is there anything, um, is there anything wrong with a man doing drag nowadays, uh, where he's actually playing a woman? And then the other, um, related question is, I was wondering if all of that fed into the decision to not have him in full drag. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it did. I, I, I don't know if he's spoken about it. Has, has either of you seen anything on that? No, no, but I, I know where you're coming from, and I, I do see uh, your point of view, and I think there's something to it. <laughs> yeah, I suspect that maybe if the, if the current climate weren't so prickly that he might have done full drag in, in playing Bella Abzug, but uh, I'll never know. Maybe he'll make a statement about it someday. Anyway, I enjoyed it um, very much because Bella Abzug, uh, I mean, I lived through uh, uh, mm. a lot of her, uh, you know, the latter part of her career anyway. In and other words, I, I've lived through Bella Abzug and I'm here. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Exactly. I uh, when I first became aware of her, I was very young, and I, I seem to remember. This is uh, another indication of how the world has changed. I seem to remember that her primarily as a, a, a brunt of fat jokes, like on television, you know, roasts and comedy shows and things like that. So that's obviously not something that would happen today. And we have we have progressed in that sense. Uh, sometimes we make progress. Um, but she really was quite a figure and uh, that I didn't know a whole lot about because then by the time I, you know, got older and became, started to become politically aware, she started to fade, but she was a, a democratic New York congressman and one uh, often described as a proto feminist. Uh, and this, uh, play, this one-person play uh, written and directed by Harvey Firestein. He plays Bella. Uh, the one set is the bathroom uh, of a of the Summit Hotel in Manhattan in 1976. And Bella is waiting for results for the primary election because she's making her bid to become the first female senatorial candidate from the state of New York. Um, She's a Democrat, of course. I don't know if I need to even say that. Um, There's a funny line uh, in the play. uh, Bella says to the audience, you've heard of backroom politics and bedroom politics. Well, this is bathroom politics. (laughs) 
Uh, and so that I really enjoyed that line. And uh, it's there's a lot of um, there's really a lot of tension because this is a five way race for the primary that she's in and it's a very tight race. And so she really doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, so she's waiting it out. And, um, the, uh, it would have been fun to see the other characters who are mentioned, uh, and who are supposed to be, uh, hanging out just outside, uh, uh, the, you know, the bathroom, I guess in the, in the hotel ballroom or whatever, because those people include Gloria Steinem, Lily Tomlin and Shirley MacLaine, aside from Abzug's husband. Um, it would have been nice to see them. But if they had been in it, then I guess this play would have been written by Robert Schenken. Mm. <laughs> and on that note, um, it's, I love it when these little coincidences happen. We currently have two plays running on New York City stages that deal briefly with the assassinations of both Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, one of them is Bella Bella and the other one is the Great Society. So I, I just think that's an interesting little coincidence. Um, uh, I did enjoy it very much. I, I think that uh, aside from my distraction about the drag thing, and I also think that um, I would say that there were moments when Harvey uh, kind of sort of fell back a little too hard on his his little trademark mannerisms and and cutesy things that he does to endear himself to the audience he uh he's always seemed to me as somebody who really really wants to be loved by the audience and there's nothing wrong with that but uh sometimes it can be a little a little aggressive and so i i felt that but there, it is very well written, and there's lots of interesting facts in it, including a very harrowing, very, very harrowing and, and powerful description of how earlier in her career in 1945, I believe, uh, Bella, uh, as a lawyer, defended a, a black man named Willie McGee who was accused of, uh, well, basically rape of a, right, of a white woman in the South, and given the time – uh, you know, there was no way he was going to he was going to be treated fairly. There was no way he's going to have justice. And in, in fact, he did wind up being electrocuted. So that is maybe the most powerful moment in this play. I, I would definitely say it's worthwhile, uh, especially if you are a Harvey fan. And uh, directed by Kimberly Senior at Manhattan Theater Club, New York City Center, stage one. All right. So that is uh, playing through December 1st, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. This episode of Broadway Radio is being brought to you by Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is a company that sells high-quality men's basics, clothing for every day, everywhere, at a great price. From head to toe, Mack Weldon has you covered in comfort from underwear to socks to tops to bottoms. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odors. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will refund you, no questions asked. Broadway Radio listeners can get 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code Broadway Radio. MacWeldon offers free shipping on orders over $50 and free returns always. On a personal note, I've been wearing my MacWeldons for a couple of weeks now, and I love my socks. The socks are great, the shirts are great, 
Everything is incredibly soft and well-made. So check out Mac Weldon. It's really important that you support the sponsors who support Broadway Radio. Peter, you got down to Theater Row to see Enchanted April. So tell us about this. Uh, I think this a musical version of this play is a tremendous success. Um, the book and lyrics are by Elizabeth Hansen, the music by C. Michael Perry, and it has a wonderful cast, including one of my all-time favorites, uh, Alma Cuervo, who plays Mrs. Fisher, the Grand Dame. Um, I don't know. Do you know Enchanted April? I hope you do. The the play version was on Broadway a few years back. Uh, Jane Atkinson, Elizabeth Ashley, a few other people. Well, here's the musical version, and it sticks very close to what happens in the play. So what happens in this um, property is that uh, Lottie Wilkins, a woman living in London in 1922, is um, a little disappointed in her marriage. Uh, It's become very routine and she really feels she needs a break. And while she's sitting uh, in a club with uh, a newspaper, she sees an ad for this castle in Italy, in Tuscany, and um, thinks it would be a very nice place to go for a month because it's available. And she starts a conversation with the woman who's sitting at the table next to her, whom she doesn't know, a woman uh, who's not very interested in talking to her, believe me, uh, Rosa Boothnot. And um, uh, but Rose has problems with her husband, too. And what we're really talking about is not the fact that these men are evil guys, terrible men, nothing like that whatsoever. It's just that each of these women know everything about these men and everything they've ever wanted to know about these men. And for that matter, the men with the women too. They've just been married too long and the day-to-day inertia has really caught up to them. So imagine what it was like for a woman in 1922 to say to her husband, I want to go away for a month. And I don't want to be with you. I want to be alone. Um, That's pretty something. The reason that um, Lottie gets Rose into this is because it's going to be an expensive proposition. In fact, they're going to need other roommates, too, for that matter. And that's when Mrs. Fisher comes in and Lady Carolyn Dester. So the four of them are going to go. And there's a lot of oil and water type stuff here. A lot of these people are from different classes. And you know the class system in England is is, is stricter than it is here. And (laughs) just four different personalities of people who don't know each other uh, can really be very dicey. Uh, If you're going to spend a month with them, a month, yeah, a castle's a big place. But, you know, there is a situation here where there is a housekeeper who is very strict about when meals will be. And you all have to sit at that table and you're going to have to have those meals and you're going to have to have conversations. Or if you don't, people are going to be offended. So the real power of this is the fact that people do need breaks. And when they get breaks, they may come to different conclusions than they expected to come to. (laughs) You may feel that what happens here is that the women, uh, once experiencing their freedom, will uh, not want to be with their husbands anymore. Uh, That once they get the taste of that, being alone, that it's going to hit the spot. Don't be so sure. That's not quite what happens in Enchanted April. But what does happen is a very nice thing that the women do become more friendly than they expected to be and uh, may very well see each other when the month is up. So it might be a, a lovely May and beyond for these people. Anyway, very traditional scientific score. Um, 
the two writers don't say they've been in the BMI workshop, but I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they have because the craft of the score is really quite fine. And the music is very appropriate for the uh, period. So um, I thought it was terrific. I think it was one of the um, best shows that I've seen this year um, in the musical category. So, uh, but of course, you know, this is not for all tastes. And um, I will admit that uh, my taste in musical theater seems to be golden age. And um, this is um, in the category of a golden age musical. But um, let's consider that a compliment, okay? And as long as we do, I think that many of you who feel that way should get over to an Enchanted April on Theater Row. It's a small space, very intimate space, and a very intimate show. And um, But um, let me also uh, mention that um, I do feel that Leah Hawking, who's been um, certainly on Broadway for a long period of time, and she was even in Jekyll and Hyde, which is suddenly 23 years ago, um, is tremendously effective as Lottie. Um, she's really the leading lady, and she's the one who keeps it going. And, uh, and you couldn't ask for anything more than the performance she's giving. Um, as I say, Alma Cuervo, um, who I've been a fan of since I saw her in White Marriage at Yale, in the 70s. Uh, really good, too. Jim Stanek. Uh, Jim Stanek, uh, who you may remember as Hero from A Funny Thing, uh, also 23 years ago, um, plays um, Leah Hawking's husband, and um, he's quite wonderful as well. Gina Sims as Lady Carolyn, uh, wonderful. Christiana Cole as Rose, equally wonderful. Tremendous cast. So um, credit, too, to um, Alice Jankel for putting them all together, making it move splendidly. A very nice directorial touch. Well, what can I say? I loved it. Jim Stanek, is, is Jim Stanek, is he lovely? Ah. Is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's not lovely. the only thing that he can do. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Michael, what were you going to say? Oh, you know, I, I just looked up the property and I, I didn't realize the the provenance of it. It it started as a novel called The Enchanted April in 1922. Then there was a 1925 Broadway play based on the novel that ran for 32 performances. Uh, there's not much information on it on I. BDB, uh, and it seemed uh, there was not a single name in the cast that I recognized, uh, but it was 1925. Uh, mm -hmm. Then we had a 1935 film called Enchanted April dropping the the. Uh, then the famous 1992 film with Joan Plowright, etc. Uh, that was one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. That's when I first became aware of the property. Um, then there was the other production that Peter alluded to. A 2003 play, which is a different adaptation, uh, and that had uh, – I remember Michael Hayden was in it, and uh, it was Elizabeth Ashley, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, uh, yes. Jane Atkinson uh, did something quite wonderful that I'd like to mention here. Um, it was the second time I saw it, and there she was uh, parading around uh, in bare feet, just so thrilled to be in Italy. And suddenly she inadvertently stubbed her toe on the couch, and her inclination was just to go on with her lines. And then, you know, after about three words, she realized, wait a minute, if this were real life, this woman would acknowledge the fact that she stubbed her toe. So, <laughs> so, so she went went, ow, and the audience <laughs> applauded like crazy, because that's exactly what would have happened in real life. <laughs> anyway, this um, I'm reading here that this musical stage adaptation by Leipert and Evans 
uh, seems to date from 2010 and has been produced in various places. But it sounds wonderful. I'm going uh, – I have my tickets. I forget when I'm going. Can't wait to see it. So Enchanted April uh, uh, came to us via the Utah Lyric Opera, which is also mm. very Oh, I've been there. Yeah? Yeah, I've been there. I saw uh, Green Willow there. <laughs> oh, really? The lesser yeah, – uh, yeah. the, the, yeah, the lesser right. known lesser. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, – oh, as uh, here's how my mind works. So my introduction to Green Willow was via Walter Willison, who did um, – uh, a reading of it many years ago, and that's the first time I had seen it on its feet. Uh, and of course, Walter Willison is uh, is part of the original cast of Grand Hotel, which is coming for a Green Room 42 production, one night only anniversary. P- Peter, did you hear about that? Yeah, yes. November 11th. And uh, you're going, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Uh, Grand Hotel is a big favorite of mine, so yeah. Yeah, so uh, Grand Hotel, Green Room 42, it's a benefit for the Actors Fund. Uh, please, let's pack that room and fill it up. Uh, a, a number of the uh, original cast members are going to be there as well. I'll be there also. I'm I'm looking forward to that. They, I, uh, yeah, I bought a ticket, and then I also didn't realize I had something else to do that evening, so I'm trying to work it out. I'm trying to get there. Maybe all three of us will be there. It's funny you say that because uh, over here the um, uh, musical, the Andrew Sisters musical, is being done at the Triad that night, and um, you know, so while this isn't quite Sophie's choice, I will say that it is a tough decision to make. I believe Grand Hotel has two performances, so you might be able to conceivably do both. It's like a because the Triad nine thirty or something like Triad's that. not that far from Forty uh, Second Street. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, back to Enchanted April. Uh, that is playing uh, at Theater 2 on Theater Row on 42nd Street, November 1st to the 16th. So uh, don't miss it. This episode of This Week on Broadway is being supported by Darren Brown's Secret. Darren Brown's Secret is now on Broadway for a strictly limited engagement. Audiences and critics are blown away by this master of psychological illusion. The New York Times says you'll be brainwashed into joy. Deadline calls it stunning, captivating, thoroughly entertaining from start to finish. The Daily Beast says you'll be flummoxed, amazed, floored, fascinated, freaked out, charmed, and wonderstruck. Experience Darren Brown's secret for yourself now at the Court Theater through January 4th. Get tickets at DarrenBrownSecret.com. Please support the advertisers who support Broadway Radio. Michael, you got a chance to see, uh, well, let's talk about uh, the combination of the Panama Hattie and the Christmas albums. Is that what we wanted to do? Oh, yes. Uh, I did get to see Panama Hattie, the York musicals in Mufti production. And I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because while I thought the cast was excellent, this this is one of those examples of a show that's never done for good reason. Uh, it does have it does have uh, three or four really good Cole Porter songs in it. The rest are either pedestrian or downright bad, unfortunately. And the book is just from hunger, as <laughs> as some some friends of mine might say. Uh, and you know, the, the, uh, silly. And funny is is fine. I have no problem with that. But silly and stupid and unfunny is is really a trial to sit through, especially when it's not that short a show. So I think uh, you know, for for archival purposes, 
one can certainly uh, say that this is something that should be done for that reason alone. Uh, but that doesn't make it easier to sit through. Although it does help when you have people like Clea Blackhurst and Stephen Bogardus and Simon Jones. So again, props to the York for that. But on a happier note, um, Clea is featured along with Jim Caruso and Billy Stritch in a new Christmas album that is getting a lot of really, really positive response and apparently selling quite well. It's called uh, A Swinging Birdland Christmas. Uh, of course, uh, Jim and Billy are at Birdland virtually every Monday night for Jim Caruso's cast party, that open mic event. Uh, and then Clea is a frequent guest of that and then also does shows shows of her own at Birdland. Uh, so they, the three of them together, they're, they're apparently very, very good friends aside from working so well together as performers. Uh, so they're on this CD along with a special guest, Aaron Weinstein, who's that insanely talented uh, jazz pop violinist. Um, who also is an incredible musician, but but in addition to that, is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Um, so I think I have not heard it yet, but I think that this CD is going to be a really, really good thing to have for the holidays and uh, something you can play at parties or just when you're, <laughs> you know, just when you're alone, you know, maybe having some hot buttered rum or whatever. Um, the label is uh, uh, the CD label is Shout exclamation exclamation point broadway and shout broadway and birdland records uh so i don't know if that means i guess i'm not aware if birdland has been um has been producing cds or maybe if this is their first one uh you know or digital albums as well i'll have to look into that uh but i'm, I'm definitely going to get my hands on that as soon as i can and then the other christmas uh album that it sounds really wonderful to me is called Vintage Broadway Christmas. And this is, a, I guess it's an uh, import. The label is Stage Door Import. And so we have lots of familiar names, people who have been on Broadway, uh, but also are famous for films and television and, and uh, et cetera, uh, singing all kinds of songs. And interestingly enough, not necessarily the most, uh, the songs that they're most famous for. So for example, uh, you will hear Eartha Kitt on this album, but she's singing a song called nothing for Christmas. Whereas her big Christmas hit Santa baby mm -hmm. is sung by Mimi Hines. Ah, uh, yeah, and so I think that that's really interesting. Then we have oh god, so many people: Dorothy Collins, Mister Santa, uh, Leslie Uggams singing Uncle Santa. <laughs> uh, oh, Dorothy also sings "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." Mary Martin, something called "Making Believe It's Christmas Eve." William Tabert, who was in South Pacific with Mary Martin, singing "Santa's on His Way." Elaine Stritch, who maybe is not the first Christmas artist you think of, <laughs> no, no. singing, but are you ready? Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. <laughs> let it snow, let it snow. 
Uh, I can't imagine the ladies just letting anything happen unless she wanted it. So <laughs> I guess she really wanted it to snow. Okay, fine. Yeah. Yes, and it will if she wants it to. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, maybe an obvious choice here: uh, Sydney Chaplin singing "Be a Santa" from "Subways Are for Sleeping." Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, uh, gosh, I, there were so there were like it's two discs. There are the lots and lots of wonderful uh, songs here. Joel Gray doing something called Santa's Little Sleigh Bells. Um, the Duncan Sisters. I mean, aren't they like from the 20s or 30s? Singing Dear Santy. Uh, I could Sandy. go on and on. Uh, Jan Pierce, Jan Pierce, Jan Pierce. Oh, uh, A Child's First Christmas. Muriel Smith, who was the original Carmen Jones, Jones yeah. and dubbed the the singing for sure. Bloody Mary in the movie South Pacific, singing the Holly and the Ivy. And I'll have to stop soon, but let's stop with John Raitt singing Sweet Little Jesus Boy. Um, so this this sounds like wonderful, like a really wonderful. And uh, for those two CDs I'm seeing here uh, – what side am I on? I'm on deepdiscount.com, and you can get it for $13.71. So check that out. All right. So I will try to get those links into the show notes so that you can get a more direct uh, way to get to those things and check them out. They sound like a lot of fun. Yes. This episode is being brought to you by showtickets.com. Showtickets.com is your go-to source for the best deals on Broadway and off-Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, and Beautiful the Carol King Musical, and 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content and stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guys, itineraries, theater news, and more. Showtickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. Showtickets.com. Peter, you got down to the public theater where you saw uh, Intuzake Shange's revival, first major New York revival of For Color Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. So tell us about this. Well, um, it's it's wonderfully done. No question about that. Lacey Gardner has put together a terrific cast. Camille A. Brown has choreographed it wonderfully, and it does have a great deal of choreography. There isn't much music in it, but there's plenty of dancing. And what we have here are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven women, each of whom is in a different colored dress. And the dresses are not just um, in different colors. There's something distinctive about each dress that's really quite wonderful. I'm going to leave it at that. So I'm watching it, and um, I, I did see the original Broadway production way back when, and um, I remember liking it immeasurably. And um, so I was looking forward to seeing this, and while I'm watching I'm saying, wow, you know, this is really a case where um, the cast really deserves an ensemble award because all seven, seven of them are so terrific. And then I remembered that Trezana Beverly got a Tony um, for playing Lady in Red, and I thought, gee, you know, that's kind of interesting because um, it seems to be such an ensemble show. Um, I'm so surprised that she stood out under the circumstances. And again, nothing against her. What I'm saying is that all six of the other women um, have just as much to do, except they don't at the end. 
the lady in red has a tremendous speech, a powerful speech, and you can really understand why it set uh, Trisana Beverly apart, and it, it sets Jamie Lawson apart. But this still is a tremendously effective ensemble effort from Jocelyn Bio, Celia Chevalier, Dania Esperanza, Adrian Seymour, Okui Ogodisasili, Alexandra Wales, um, all wonderfully effective um, in their own way. And uh, the point of the show is that it isn't easy uh, growing up uh, young, uh, gifted, and black, um, to use another um, phrase from a different show that isn't too dissimilar for that matter. But um, one thing that that has occurred to me since uh, the original production is there has been a movie version. And I have to say that the movie version is far more effective because it dramatizes um, in actual scenes what these women are simply speaking about. And I'll never forget watching this movie version and being so appalled by a certain scene that Anika Nani Rose has where um, she's met a man, she likes him. She likes him a lot. And she has him over to her apartment for dinner. And this guy cannot wait. I mean, the official um, <laughs> uh, feeling is it's the third date if you're getting along where you have sex. This guy cannot wait. And he, he she doesn't want it. He rapes her. And it is such an effective scene that I had to shut off the movie at that point and wait a few days before I resumed. I mean, it was so effective to me. Here is just a a line that's tossed off. And so while it's effective to hear these women do this, I have to say that I do believe the movie version is far more powerful for dramatizing this. Still, I guess the real solution is to go see the show and then see the movie and you'll really get the impact of what's going on. But uh, this production, especially because Leia C. Gardner has done such a wonderful job, is not to be denied. And because the ensemble is so wonderful, too. All right. So uh, we will have a link to that in the show notes for the uh, One Color Girls uh, down at the public. Uh, It is a a really hard to get ticket right now. Uh, Uh. And so if you can get down to there and see it. Uh, Michael, we have uh, some upcoming things at 54 Below that you wanted to talk about. Uh, Our friend Melissa Erico is going to be back at 54 Below. Oh, yes, yes. She's doing her uh, Michelle Legrand show. And this is apparently just really fabulous. uh, She has an album that is absolutely beautiful of Michelle Legrand material. And of course, one of Melissa's Broadway credits was Amour, uh, the show with music by Michelle Legrand, which had a very short run, but that show has its ardent, ardent fans. And I, and I can certainly understand why Michelle Legrand was one of the absolute most talented and prolific composers in history, I think, and certainly in my lifetime. So Melissa's going to be uh, at 54 uh, this uh, this week, this weekend. I think it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm, I'm going on Saturday. Uh, so check her out because if you can get tickets, because I've, I hear it's selling really, really well. Okay. And also you got a chance to see Leonard Sol- Soloway's Broadway. So tell us about this uh, film. 
Yeah, this is a wonderful new documentary about someone who maybe his name is not uh, that well known to the general public, but certainly, certainly within the theater community, he's now uh, 90 or 91, and he has had a fabulous career in the theater and wearing several hats, uh, producer, general manager. Uh, he was a house manager at one point. So there's hardly anyone he doesn't know. And the talking heads in this documentary are phenomenal. Uh, they include Manny Eisenberg, Tova Felcha, Olympia Dukakis, Elizabeth Ashley, aforementioned, Debbie Gravitt, Ken Billington, Joe Allen, uh, publicist Keith Sherman, both Phil Smith and Bob Wankel, heads of the Schubert organization and other other fabulous people of that sort, uh, narrated, by the way, by Campbell Scott, who will soon be on Broadway uh, playing Ebenezer Scrooge in a, uh, a new staging of A Christmas Carol. Uh, this is just, I mean, of course, this <laughs> this movie is right up my alley, and I absolutely loved it. It's it's so well done. They um, uh, There's lots of footage in Sardis and Joe Allen and lots of other places around the theater district. I think uh, there was a scene in what looked like the Edison Cafe, although I couldn't tell if it was before or after the uh the the conversion of that space uh what is it called now freedman's yeah mm -hmm. yeah i i think it was after the conversion it, it wasn't they didn't really do a long shot but i'm pretty sure that's where they were um but there's a wonderful moment where uh they're interviewing olympia dukakis in sardis uh, uh the crew is interviewing her there and then um they kind of cut and the the fellow doing the filming says well thank you so much for being with us and Olympia, they're still filming, and you know, uh, but but they've they've cut, and uh, she says, "How the hell is Leonard?" And the fellow filming says, "Well, you know, we can call him." <laughs> and she says, "Oh, I'd love to say hello." So somebody calls him on her on their cell phone and hands her the the phone, and. Uh, she says, uh, Leonard, you know, it's Olympia. And he says, Olympia, my darling treasure, how the fuck are you? <laughs> and she says, I I'm alive. What are you, 90 now? <laughs> and they just go on. <laughs> and they obviously have a great, a great uh, rapport. Um, and the thing that's very interesting for me is that the framing device of this film, it, it covers Leonard's whole career. But the framing device is his production of a show that I saw. Um, uh, Maurice Hines tapping through life, uh, which was at New World Stages. Did you guys both see that show? Uh huh. Yeah, and so they keep, uh, you know, they they have a little bit of that at the beginning, and then they keep coming back to it, and they kind of tell the story of that show's movement from uh, I don't remember where it started, but being brought from out of town. Uh, initially, the the idea was to bring it to Broadway, but they didn't, they couldn't come up with the funding, so they brought it to Off-Broadway. And it's very interesting because uh, uh, Leonard is very, very, very honest about his responsibility for uh, apparently what happened was he wound up opening the show without it being fully capitalized. And so even though it got excellent reviews, they had to close. And it's very, very um, – you know, his honesty is is amazing. Uh, the fact that and not only his honesty, but the fact that it's being documented in a film, uh, you really have to see it. It's uh, 
there can be a shortage of of honesty in in, in the theater. <laughs> yeah, you know, I everywhere. mean, because yeah, well, everywhere, absolutely. Any you know, any time that uh, that so many personalities are involved and in competing, uh, you know, competing. Uh, interests etc but anyway uh i i just i just loved it let's see what else do i have to tell you about it without giving away too much oh um there's a wonderful story and some great footage about marlena dietrich because leonard uh worked on one uh, her broadway show with uh, this was the one where burt Bacharach was her musical director and uh just a wonderful portrait of marlena dietrich who could be this very grand diva and the most down-to-earth person, apparently, that you would ever want to meet. She would, on the one hand, uh, he says, uh, Leonard says, she, Marlena would pay to have people throw roses at her feet during the 20-minute curtain call. But on the other hand, uh, <laughs> he says that uh, a few days before her show was going to open, she asked to have her dressing room painted and Leonard said, Oh yes, it's going to be painted on Monday. And she said, Oh no, I, I it has to be painted today because I guess she wanted it to dry and the smell to get out or she just wanted it done right away. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't afford to have, uh, and I can't get one to have someone to have it painted right now. And she said, Oh, you don't have to paint it. Uh, just give me the paint and I'll do it. Wow. So, so he got her the paint and she painted her dressing room. <laughs> And then he also tells the story about how she, she was so down to earth, salt of the earth, that on matinee days she would cook tons of food at home and bring it for the band. So I, she really sounds like a fascinating woman, and that's only one example of the, of the amazing people he worked with. Uh, there's a great story about Lauren Bacall, which I won't spoil. Um, there are stories about another one of Leonard's shows, the the six-month rehearsal period of Jerome Robbins' Broadway, uh, who Manny Eisenberg describes in the film as, quote, maybe the single most difficult man I'd ever met in the theater, maybe in the world, unquote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as so, yeah, it's it's just it's it's catnip for for theater lovers. And I know I, I got to see a, a screener of it um, at home, but I know it has a, a run coming up uh, at the Landmark Theater uh, over on West Far West 57th Street. So I'm, I'm really I'm honestly planning to go again to pay because I want to support it. And I'd well, love to see it again. <laughs> I, I, I adored it as well. And um, But I have to say that I was hoping that a story would come up that I've always heard about how to succeed in business without really trying. Now, uh, when this show originally opened in 1961, Leonard Soloway had his first job in the theater as house manager. Mm. And there's a very famous story about the fact that, of course, the show was sold out um, for a long time. And a guy went up to the box office and said, "Um, yes, I'd like to buy standing room. And they said, oh, uh, yes, that'll be $3. And uh, he said, $3? Gee, that's that's a lot of money. Um, And, uh, well, sir, that's the price. Um, Could I see the manager, please? So if this is Leonard Soloway, I would like to hear if the story was valid, um, that um, Leonard Soloway said, well, tell you what. It's three dollars, but if you stand on one foot and keep the other leg up, we'll only charge you a dollar fifty. And the guy said, 
I said, yeah, okay. And Lenis, whoever the, whoever made this deal with him, maybe it was a box office treasure, maybe it wasn't Lennon Soloway at all, um, actually watched him for the performance, and he never put his leg down. and was always up for the entire first and second act. I mean, he put it down during intermission. That's all right. But um, <clears throat> so I, I was went in hoping that that story would be um, told, alluded to, uh, contradicted, uh, urban legend, who knows. But it's a funny story for its own sake. Oh, yes, that's great. it is. <laughs> so, as Michael said, uh, it's going to be at the uh, the landmark fifty seven, uh, f- the fourth, uh, which is Monday tomorrow through the seventh. Uh, and I'll have a link to the website uh, LeonardSolowayBroadway dot com, where you can see the trailer and find more uh, performances, uh, showings of this film there as well. Uh, this looks uh, infinitely fascinating. So. It is. Oh, great! <laughs> and so much, and it's so up to date um, that there's even and there's lots of shots of Times Square, uh, you know, in the Broadway theaters, and there's even a shot of the marquee for uh, for Tina, hmm. the wow. Tina Turner yeah. musical. Okay. So that you know, I mean, I guess they maybe it's wrapped this like months, yeah. three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, so uh, that wraps it up for us for today. Before we get on to the question for trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Uh, Also, we'd uh, love it if uh, you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review there. Uh, And on Facebook, uh, leave us a positive review on our Facebook page as well. Um, because it would help us uh, reach many more people. Uh, Our Heart Radio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you're going to be able to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter and for Michael and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including the uh, Leonard Soloway um, film. All right, Peter, so we answered the answer to last week's trivia at the top of this broadcast but now ask us the question for this week all right why are these shows in this order flower drum song pearly it's so nice to be civilized the adams family pipe dream a class act and the wedding singer all right if you have an answer to the, that question, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Potentier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.